Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. It's something we will get into in today's episode, but I do want to highlight up top here just how evocative the names of famous hangover cures are. The Bloody Mary, Hair of the Dog, and the Corpse Reviver, numbers one and two. It's the second of that duo that we're focusing on in today's show, and I think that among the category of alcoholic rejuvenators, the Corpse Reviver number two really does stand alone. Because, sure, it's bright and lively, and may very well provide steam and energy, as Harry Craddock so famously once noted. But it doesn't need those associations. You know, you give it a completely different name and sell this drink on all of its own individual merits, and I guarantee the Corpse Survivor number two, or whatever it would be called, would be just as beloved among drinkers as it is now. Honing in on each of those details and more, we're joined by Harrison Snow today. Early this year, that would be 2022, to keep this evergreen, Harrison opened Lullaby in New York's Lower East Side, along with his friend and business partner, Jake Hodas. He also previously worked at a gin-focused bar, which led him to trying this cocktail with over 100 different gin brands. We're dialing it down to just one, two, or maybe three today, listener. Speaking of trios, get ready for a little McCurdy original suggestion thrown in there today for good measure. That's just what we do here at Cocktail College, listener, as you well know. Just as you're also familiar with the fine folks bringing it to your ears. The Vine Pair Podcast Network. HBO's got a new show. It's, an, it's a Game of Thrones preview. And you might say that winter is coming because we've got Harrison Snow in the studio today. <laughs> I'm sorry about that one. Harrison, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Um, pleasure to have you here in the Vine Pear studio in the Cocktail College, the home of Cocktail College. Likewise, I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to getting into the Corpse Reviver number two. I got two questions off the bat for you. What's the earliest you've ever had a Corpse Reviver number two in the day? Oh, my goodness, in the day. Um, I think actually today might have been the earliest that I had one, mm -hmm. just because I was trying to solidify my recipe, make sure that everything was still um, the way that I liked it. So that was probably about, I don't know, 10.30 30. okay. Right? Which is actually oftentimes, you know, with my late night schedule, working at Lullaby and everything, earlier than I, I tend to get up. So mm -hmm. I, yeah. I definitely... <laughs> so it's an early one for you today. My corpse was certainly revived yeah. this morning, I'll tell you that much. Second question for you, part B here of the opener. What is the most amount of corpse reviver number twos you've had in succession? Oh my goodness. Wow. Um... Definitely enough to need my corpse revived the next day, the following day as well. Mm. Um, I don't know, probably some somewhere in the realm of eight, ten, <laughs> eight, eight to ten much? corpse revivers. I think That's they a... say you're supposed to, you know, I don't know, 
whenever you talk to your doctor, they're supposed to, however many drinks you say you have in a week, they're supposed to double it. Yeah. That's what they do. So I'm always like, oh, should I say 10 or should I say five? <laughs> <laughs> Depends. There's no doctors here, but we will be chatting doctors because they're an integral part of the history of this drink. And I asked you those two questions in the beginning here only because, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but um, I think the, the recipe first appears in the classic Savoy cocktail book, Harry Craddock, right. who notes on this drink to be taken before 11 a.m. or whenever steam and energy are needed. So good job on the 1030. Yeah. And he also famously cautioned, four of these taken in swift succession will quickly unrevive the corpse again. So I don't know whether <laughs> A takes you too far, but uh, keeping it on track there. Sorry, just slipped that one in. But yeah, let's, before we do that, for anyone unfamiliar, can you briefly outline the ingredients that are in this drink that we're exploring today? I certainly can. Yeah. So as published in the Savoy cocktail book, um, I believe Harry Craddock's recipe was equal parts dry gin, uh, Cointreau, Kina Lillet, and lemon juice with a, an additional dash of absinthe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, interesting one there. It follows that. And I don't know how we didn't mention this in the last word recipe, but uh, in the last word episode. But yeah, it's that it's that classic formula we're seeing again. Maybe this probably predates the last word. Who knows? We don't need to get into that. But it's, yeah, great formula. Yeah, e excellent formula. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Fundamental formula for a lot, tons of modern classics. Mm -hmm. So do you want to chat a little bit more about that history there? You know, we have Harry Craddock's book, but are there any other notable points in history where this, this cocktail appears? And then what about like, modern day, um, even up to 2022? Mm -hmm. um, well, so, I mean, in terms of the history, I mean, it's interesting. I think that as far as I can tell, uh, the Savoy cocktail book was the uh, earliest, you know, sort of publishing that we can find of this specific recipe for the Corpse Reviver number two. Um, there were later recipes published in a few books uh, that actually used Swedish punch in place of Kina Lillet, hmm. uh, which is um, fascinating. What uh, is Swedish punch? Uh, so it's a, it can be made from an assortment of different base spirits, uh, either a rock or rum uh, mixed with, with uh, spices and a rock oh, tea, nice. which is like lemon juice. And yeah, um, uh, Household Pens did a, uh, they have a product that's like a, a sort of a modern remake of Swedish yeah. Punch that I think they worked with, I want to say Wondrich on, but I'm not so sure. Sounds about right. Yeah. This, this cocktail also seems very much in Household Pens' wheelhouse in terms of like the spirits that they have, their offerings, that they have some wonderful stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think that's the earliest publishing that we can find um, and certainly the base recipe that everybody I know seems to go by. Um, but as I can tell, the term Corpse Reviver, obviously there's also the Corpse Reviver number one in the Savoy cocktail book, which is a stirred cocktail with cognac and applejack mm -hmm. uh, or apple brandy of some kind, which is, I think, a lot less commonly made today than the Corpse Reviver number two. For sure. But the term, um, I think, definitely predates this specific cocktail recipe. Um, seems to have been used in Britain in the, uh, you know, in the... Uh, 1900s, um, and uh, or even even maybe even the mid 1800s. Uh, yeah, I believe perhaps even earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and certainly the the sentiment behind it, which is you know a, a cocktail that's a morning tonic or something to you know revive your corpse from the night before, is 
is definitely an age-old concept, right? Mm -hmm. It's something that we see. Hair of the dog. Hair of the dog, yeah. And and we see, you know, as cocktails evolve throughout, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, we see that, you know, various different applications of using um, these ways of justifying why we're drinking at certain times that maybe we shouldn't be drinking, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's interesting. It's an interesting conversation, I think, historically, whether it was just a reason for justifying the rampant alcoholism that yep. was all over the world. We do like to do that in Britain. Certainly. I, I can confirm. And not just day. in Britain, right? We have <laughs> our, our digestifs and our aperitifs in France right. and, and Italy, right? And it's open up your palate or start your digestive process, whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> I think really we just like to drink. That's my theory. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of it in terms of history. I think uh, Ted Hay might have been the one to bring it back in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And since then, it's been, um, I think, a classic that's uh, beloved by bartenders. Yeah. I see more and more people ordering it at, uh, you know, just off menu at cocktail bars, which I think yeah. is pretty cool. I think that is cool. I mean, I was, it's something I was going to ask you, and um, I'll jump in with that now, too. So, like, at Lullaby, because, I mean, I would urge folks, if, if they're in New York or visiting, to, to go check you guys out down there. Um, I think your offering is really interesting and and wonderful in that you know we're talking volume or your place gets busy mm -hmm. but the drinks are very very high quality we're talking proper craft cocktails if, if i'm allowed to use the term craft still or if that's cool anymore i don't know but like so that intersection of those two but it's also like a young crowd it's a, it's a great place to spend the night so my question is like how much are people calling it out there because it's um yeah, this, this is kind of a nerdy one. You have to know it, right? Certainly, yeah. Um, you know, it's not too often that you get a Corpse Reviver. Yeah. Um, I also have noticed that when people do order it, they just say Corpse Reviver, and yeah. the assumption <laughs> is that it's the number two and number not the number two. one. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've gotten it, certainly, a handful mm -hmm. of times. Um, and the cool thing about Lullaby for me is that um, the whole process of Lullaby, especially because it's a younger crowd and, you know, certain nights of the week tends to be a demographic that... Uh, uh, you know, otherwise doesn't interact with a high caliber cocktail experience sure. all that often, which mm -hmm. is part of the goal of the project is that we're able to open people up to these cocktails. And yeah. so we find that, you know, maybe on a, uh, a night where we have a little bit more time to have a conversation with someone and, Hey, maybe try this classic. Suddenly everyone's ordering it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've seen that with certain cocktails. That's like, cool. Yeah. Like You're, the Martinez and the Bijou. We got people drinking like Bijou's all the time. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. You um, guys are influencing the next generation of drinkers here in New York. That's for sure. I, I hope so. I mean, that's at least the goal. I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> to, 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 before we leave, by the way, uh, this is a complete jump. I'm just jumping around here. but Jump around. Before we do, on the, on the history, right? Um, you mentioned the term corpse reviver. I've got a little something in my notes here as well, if I can just refer to. In the 19th century, a corpse provider was a facetious term for a physician which tells us a lot about general consumer confidence for healthcare in the era. Those are the words there of uh, myself, Tim McCurdy, on an art collaboration by the Corpse Provider <laughs> 1 to 2. But the Corpse Provider, that was the name for doctors. Wonderful. I, I, I like that duality of the, you know, the provider and the, and the reviver. I'm not sure whether doctors, whether doctors were prescribing this. Maybe back then, though. Uh, it's quite possible. Doctors really prescribed an assortment of things that, that <laughs> now are, I think, deemed strictly recreational items today. A hundred percent. 
Um, so yeah, coming back to, to modern day, you said Ted Hay probably, and yeah, this is one that does gain steam through the cocktail renaissance, through the, this kind of golden era. Um, how much do you think, we'll, we'll do the ingredients in a little bit, but how much do you think this is also, its popularity is tied to absinthe? Because of course, up until 2007, absinthe wasn't available in the US because it was illegal and had been illegal for, what, like almost 100 years. So with that coming back, do you, th do you feel like that might have played into like what bartenders wanted to make at the time and reuse this ingredient they had again? I think that's quite possible. I mean, it's definitely, it's, I think it's a combination of that and also the, the resurgence of, of gin and mm -hmm. how prevalent gin has become. Both of those things together, because this cocktail is, it's a really fascinating cocktail to me, but when it's done right, it's really a perfect intro to absinthe cocktail for somebody yeah. who maybe, you know, has had experiences with absinthe that are otherwise a little bit intense for them. Yeah. And, and uh, likewise with gin, right? So, um, you know, I think that's, that's entirely possible in, in both scenarios. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point as well, just that reminder of gin too, because it's something we really take for granted, just how kind of popular gin is now. But um, it's, yeah, it's not always been that way. It's not always been that approachable. Um, in terms of the cocktail itself, if you're making it or you were making it this morning at 10.30 a.m., what are you looking for in the final profile? What are you what are you hoping to taste in that drink or smell? What's the what's the texture like for you? Um, what's a perfect version of this drink? Excellent question. I think it's um, this cocktail uh, specifically is a really delicate balance of specific ingredients. I think it can be made a ton of different ways, and you can certainly swap out different gins, different curacaos, and we can talk about more of that later, certainly. Um, but I don't know. Whenever I'm uh, trying to come up with my personal recipe for a cocktail that has some sort of historical, you know, prevalence, I like to try and make it in its original form first and try to see maybe what the creator was looking to achieve. Because with with a cocktail like this, you can swap out a lot of ingredients and suddenly you have a totally different thing, right? Yeah. Even if you're still following that same basic profile of, you know, gin, curacao, lemon juice, you know, some sort of fortified aromatized wine and some absinthe. Um, I, it is my belief that this is a very bright cocktail. It's very refreshing um, with, uh, you know, very strong notes of citrus uh, that sort of carry through a, a static note of absinthe, right? It's a refreshing absinthe cocktail. Um, I also think that this cocktail really highlights lemon in a very cool way. I think a lot of people sort of tend to skew towards lime in the cocktail community. We see it, yeah. you know, a lot of people agree it's the superior citrus or whatever. And I agree for most applications. Yeah. You can't really swap out lemon juice in a daiquiri and get a comparable, you know, no, end at result all. at all. Um, and so you see, I feel like I see lemon juice more often used in, in cocktails uh, of a larger volume. And um, this is a cocktail where I think that lemon juice really shines through. And if you have the rest of your, your um, ingredients you know, balanced in such a way uh, that, that the cocktail comes out the way that I think it should. It's really crisp and refreshing and tart and and somewhat dry. Yep. And again, carrying through that that really nice, you know, clean, sharp note of absinthe. Mm -hmm. And I think in that way, it's a perfect 
corpse reviver yeah. or, you know, were you to be drinking this at, at you know, before 11 in the morning as prescribed, um, it's, uh, it, it's perfect in that way. I mean, it's, it's like a morning shot of lemon juice to get you going <laughs> in, in a way that that corpse reviver number one isn't really, it's no, more stirred and boozy, right? So it makes sense why this one kind of would I think, be the, would be the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's also a more appealing just pr- profile of cocktail, more interesting, right? Than, than the number one. I mean, the number one's a great drink. Mm-hmm. I think um, it definitely deserves its own episode. It'll get one one day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think the number two is more interesting. Um, quick sidebar here on that. Not that many cocktails out there that have multiple iterations. The tuxedo? Are there two tuxedos? Or is, no, wait, is there just one? I only know of one tuxedo, but I... I'm. I could be wrong. There could I be might be making. One. I might be making that up, and it might be one of those ones that I've just always confused. I'm. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna Google this on my phone right now. <laughs> Sorry about this, folks. Tuxedo number two. There is one. There is one. Okay. Oh cool. wait, that might be a cock. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. Okay. I don't know if there's a tuxedo number one. I'm assuming there is as well. This mm. is showing. This is showing some of my lack of knowledge here of the classics. Um, we'll cut but, this part out. <laughs> but what we're saying essentially is there's not that many others, right? There's not that many, no. I mean, you definitely see in early cocktail books, uh, you know, there was there there were various iterations, maybe not number one, number two, but you have like old-fashioned whiskey cocktail, old-fashioned yeah. brandy cocktail, things like that that sort of follow the same yeah. style. Um but yeah, no, not too many that have multiple iterations like that. I mean, those are completely different cocktails, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't really consider them to be in the same family other than having the same name. I like that idea, though, of coming up with a trilogy, you know, or, or, or two cocktails in the same family. Is that ever something that comes up when for yourself when you're coming up with names for drinks, when you're creating drinks? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe I'm going to do the trilogy. <laughs> uh Interesting. Uh, you mean the McCurdy triple triple? Oh. Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> no, but feel free to feel free to uh, <laughs> feel free to introduce the public to that because I think it's a good one. I certainly can. I was going to wait until you asked me what my favorite cocktail was. Oh, because I only have three at a time. Uh, um, Tell tell the world about the, the the famous McCurdy triple round. The, the McCurdy triple round is something that was introduced to me uh, fairly recently. Um, I certainly needed my corpse revived the next morning after that. <laughs> Same. But um, uh, uh, we, Tim and I were out with my uh, business partner and good friend Jake uh, uh, for martinis, and Tim said, "You know what, guys? Let's have one more round." But it's going to be a McCurdy triple round. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, what is this? Um, I think that we had uh, each a Pilsner, an, uh, an Aquavit, mm-hmm. and a cocktail. And you chose the last word. I think because you just done the last word we episode. We just done the last word episode, so that's why we went with the last word. But, yeah, that's the, that's the classic triple there. It's the, uh, the, classic the, triple. <laughs> the Pilsner, Aquavit, and cocktail of your choice. However, it can never be a martini. The martini uh, begins the night. You go two max, and then you're out. <laughs> but so any other cocktail, I do tend towards shaken drinks as well for for that triple. But um, try it, try it at home, folks. It's wonderful. <laughs> no, I, when I meant the the triple there, though, I was like, um, I was trying to pull up that article as well too. Again, because one thing that I think has helped this drink, not just its wonderful formula and flavor, but it's it's an evocative name. 
that helps things have staying power in in the industry. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, something about that that name really sticks with you. It paints a vivid picture, mm-hmm. the corpse reviver. I think we can all relate to the idea, or to the to the image, rather, of waking up the next morning and feeling like a corpse. Yeah. Right? I and mean, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, somewhat ironic that the other very common drink for curing a hangover would be a Bloody Mary. <laughs> Similarly kind of evocative yeah. name right there. Yeah, exactly. Um so we spoke about the profile. We've done the history. Let's get into now, and, and we've done a good amount about the name. Let's get into now the each ingredient bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, actually, one thing. We will get into the recipe, but curious to hear, are you, are you going three quarters of an ounce or one ounce of gin? I see both recipes out there, but... If I'm making it for myself, it's one ounce. Mm-hmm. Um, in the bar, usually three quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I was taught to make yeah. it. Um, and it, it, in terms of the size of our glass where it fits better, I think mm-hmm. either works, you know. Um, maybe slightly adjust your dashes of absinthe yeah. if it's one. But, yeah, three-quarter for us. And the reason I do bring that up now, the, you know, rather than when we get into the recipe section, is because I think it does have an impact on the texture of the cocktail. That, that you know, extra three-quarters ounce of, of alcohol, it's going to be bigger in body. That's the way I view it in my mind. And if there's one tiny complaint I have about the Corpse Survivors, sometimes it can feel a little thin. Mm. Even if it's full of flavor, texture-wise, it can feel a little weak for me. So I do like dialing that up too. I guess you could do stuff with simple. We'll get into that anyway. But gin. Are you going classic London dry? Are you going American or otherwise? What's your preference when it comes to this drink? My preference in this drink is definitely going to be a classic London dry. Um, I've certainly tried it with a bunch of other types of gins, and many of them work. And I do think that this is one of those drinks that because the rest of the the ingredients are relatively mild ingredients and are not, um, in, you know, intrusive, bold ingredients, you can experiment with a ton, a ton of different gins. I may be one of the few people actually who, and this is one of the reasons I chose this cocktail, who's tried this cocktail with uh, at least 150 gins. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, at, at, I, I was trained in gin, and um, my first job in a cocktail bar was a gin bar, and that was one of the drinks on our menu in our classic section. And we would have people come in um, who would, were part of our gin club, and uh, they would have to try every cocktail and every gin, and then they would get some, you know, prize at the end. It yeah. was really more about, you know, having them engage with the bar, right? Cool. Um, so... I've tried this. I've tried it with pretty much any gin you can name that was available at the time. There are so many gins popping up. Yeah, that, you know now it's it's hard to keep track. But I side you know side note, classic London Dry for me absolutely, yeah. and something uh, a little bit higher in ABV. Um, something you know maybe in the forty seven to forty nine percent is kind of the sweet spot for me. I think mm-hmm. for this cocktail, Tanqueray Number Ten works really well. Nice. Yeah, big tank fan. One thing I'll say as well just that's wonderful about gin is that you really do get that more than any other spirit, I would say, um, maybe American whiskey. You, you do get those range of ABVs, mm-hmm. even just within the London dry style. So like you can really tweak this thing bit by bit and just choosing one over another. We speak a lot about the fact that beef eater has gone down to 44 now from 47. Rest in peace. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very sad day. 
you can go Navy Strength if you want to go uh, Alan Katz there at New York Distilling Co. You know sure. Perry's Tot. So you, you can really go across the board, and and I think that's one of the amazing, one of the many amazing things about gin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, agreed. Absolutely. What's your um, what's your given that you did work in a in a gin bar? What's your desert island gin? Oh man, um, my desert island gin. God, I have to pick one. And don't worry about the climate there. Okay, can, here's you, my question. Do I have other ingredients to make a cocktail with this gin? I'm going to say no. Okay, it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be Citadel's No Mistake Old Tom gin. Okay. That gin, I'm not even sure if it if it's still available, at least the, the, the one that I was drinking back when I was working at that gin bar, we had a ton of it. I think mm-hmm. because it was allocated and it was it was going out of stock, but... Amazing old Tom gin, mm-hmm. uh, enough juniper to call it a gin, but certainly a sweeter profile can be drank on its own. And also in terms of drinking stuff on its own, I'm typically a whiskey guy. So it just yeah. kind of hits every note for me and it's absolutely delicious. All right. Um, note on Citadel as well. I hope I'm not breaking an embargo or anything here because uh, they've got a new one coming out and it's a limited edition one to kind of um, commemorate 25 years or something. Um, it's full on juniper. It's a celebration of juniper. I forget the name. Sorry, guys. But it is amazing. Be on the lookout for that. And I, I've tried a very small sample of it. I'm very excited about it. So be on the lookout. And if it is that limited edition, pick up a bottle while you can. This is just organic here. This is me just saying, like, I've they're tried it. I love it. They're, <laughs> they're not paying. No one's paying for that. Um, but I, I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for bottles. What about... Um, what about if you were make if you were able to use that gin in cocktails? Then the other mm, question there. That's a really good question. Um, if I were to use it in cocktails, maybe Tanqueray Number Ten. Yeah, honestly, yeah, good martini with Tanqueray Number yeah. Ten. Yeah, you know? it's a classy bottle as well. It is very nice packaging. I don't know. I I, I go between that and Ford's when I'm like. Ford's is great. If I'm if I'm going my go to martini, but it evolves. You know, it changes. Sure. Um, next one, Lillette. So we got into this pretty deep as well in the Vesper episode. Go check that one out if you haven't heard that yet after you finish listening to this. Of course, Lillette, famously, the story is that the, the recipe was reformulated in 1986, I have written here. Um, it's believed to be that the modern day profile isn't as bitter as it was before. What's your thinking when it comes to this ingredient? Are, are, are you seeking something else or are you splitting that component between two ingredients to try and capture that original profile? Or are you just saying, you know what, this cocktail works great with a modern day version and that's evolution? <laughs> um, great question. Uh, I absolutely agree. So, I mean, I know for a fact that, that Lillet did change their recipe. I know that the company claims that they don't, but they did. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, yeah, so Lillet, I don't like to use in this cocktail, personally. No? Um, no, I think, I mean, obviously, I was not around before 1986 to taste the original <laughs> Kina Lillet, but I think we can all agree that Ke- that the current Lillet Blanc does not resemble a Kina of any sort, really. Yeah. Um, so uh, I've heard a lot of bartenders like uh, like to use Coqui Americano, yeah. also in their Vesper, right? Um, I'm also a big fan of Tempest Fugit's uh, Kina Lero d'Or. Yeah. It used to be called Kina L'Avion. Um, so 
I've tried it with both. I like to split those two 50, 50, um, in, in my corpse survivor number two, I used to actually prefer the, the Tempest Fugit Kina, Mm -hmm. but I've found that as the cocktail warms up, although it does give it a little more body, like you talked about before, which I think is key there. Um, as it warms up, it becomes a little cloying and that, that's, that split balance there. Uh, for me, is just perfect. That's awesome. I, I was going to ask you that as well, but that's a great point about the, the, the body. And um, I've not tried the Lerador like on its own mm-hmm. before. I've had it in certain cocktails. Uh, so that what that does error on the sweeter side. So you say that the the um, the cokies the the drier, the more bitter of the two components there. Um, not necessarily. The the Kina Lavion uh, or Kina Lerador is. Um, is also very bitter, uh, mm-hmm. or, or fairly bitter. Um, but it's, it's got a decent amount of body to it mm-hmm. for sure. It's very yeah. viscous, um, certainly, uh, syrupy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those two together, I think both, you know, add bitterness in somewhat different ways too. the bitterness mm-hmm. in the, um, in the, uh, the Koki is a little sharper, uh, and, and is a little more, I think quinine heavy and the mm-hmm. Kina, it brings a lot of like also Citrus bitterness for me. Yeah, I think that they balance really well together. Mm-hmm. Adding adding a little bit of body, adding some nice bitterness throughout, and some complimentary citrus notes in there. I think that yeah, I can imagine. I can already imagine that making for a much better cocktail because yeah, you know, I like Lulet. I think it's a great product mm-hmm. for for different things. Me too. Um, spritz with it, amazing. Amazing, yeah. But no one's gonna say this is something that has body and. I mean, I don't know what the original was, but the ABV is much lower as well, yep. and and I and, and again that comes through in the body of the cocktail. So, you know, if you're if you're only using it for the name, then maybe yeah, it's worth rethinking it here. We're turning this drink pretty soon into a six bottle pickup here, unless unless it's going even more. <laughs> what's what's next for us? Lemon juice. Lemon juice. That I'm happy to say I'm perfectly fine with a, with fresh squeezed <laughs> lemon juice there. That's perfect. Um, I do think that this is a drink, like I said, that really highlights the lemon juice. And so fresh is absolutely key here. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're talking fresh, we're talking day of. Day off. Um, yeah. If, if it's in that six to eight hour window, that's perfect. I think day of is perfectly fine. Um, if you can squeeze it right before the cocktail too, that also works. Um, but yeah. We've been experimenting with with uh, you yeah. know super juice a little bit, like we talked about before. I was going to ask you about this. This keeps coming up on the show as well. I, you got to try it, man. It's pretty. It's pretty remarkable stuff. Uh, I have not yet found a recipe for super lemon juice that I think is perfect. So we're sticking with fresh until that in, mm-hmm. in, until that uh, recipe gets dialed in. But I mean, if I think if you're making this at home. Mm-hmm. Fresh lemon juice, yeah. absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's we right. I mean, we don't need to say more about that. Uh, but the the super lime for anyone listening, and and again we have touched upon it a bit. But um, what's the thinking there? What's what what's happening there on, on that front? So um, I'd heard a lot about this uh, for a while from a bunch of people, and as more credible uh, voices in the industry started telling me, look, you really have to try super super juice. Like we've totally changed our program. I was like, all right, I just need to try this so that I can tell these people that they're idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we tried it actually a few weeks ago at Lullaby. And so if Super Juice, for anybody who doesn't know, is, I guess, sort of combining the theory of, um, you know, a, a lime acid solution or a lemon acid solution using your citric and your malic acids uh, to mimic the acid profile of lime juice. Um, and then uh, blending that with uh, the peels from the fruit and some of the fresh juice 
And um, there's a whole process. You can look it up. I don't need to talk about it, but it's it's pretty remarkable stuff. And we tried it in a variety of different cocktails at Lullaby. We tried it in mm-hmm. a daiquiri, and you really can't hide in a daiquiri, can you? Yeah. Um, and it, it worked really well. And actually, in a blind taste, taste test, our bartenders preferred it. Really? Yeah. I think that has something to do with the oils from the peel, right? Uh, yeah. Those are heavily incorporated into the juice, and I think that just adds, like, another, you know, element to— Yeah, it's another— to, It yeah. makes it dynamic, right? You get a, a f- sort of a full picture of what that lime tastes like, and it adds some complexity and bitterness. And in a daiquiri, we would usually toss a lime peel in the shaker anyway or a lime shell, so it mm-hmm. all kind of works out really well. Yeah. And, I, yeah, that's great. I mean, that that makes so much sense to me as well when you're talking about that extra layer of complexity and nuance. You guys are bartenders. You've got you've got sophisticated palates. You taste a lot, so it does make sense to me that the more complex ingredient is going to be more attractive mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, um, and it's pretty cool just how indistinguishable it is mm-hmm. from fresh lime juice, both you know in the body, mm-hmm. in the you know in the in the freshness, and we tasted it several days after as well. Um, I don't I don't really know how it works beyond that. It's but it's it's pretty cool, mm-hmm. and it's you know minimizes the waste the you know from the bar certainly. So and limes are still pretty expensive, right? Yeah, they've gone down a little bit in price. They were they they were pretty. The prices were pretty intense a few months ago, but not so bad at the moment. But still, I mean, in terms of just on a sustainability front and also, yeah. you know, you know, maximizing your your costs, keeping them low, it's kind of a no-brainer if you if you like the end result of nice. the process. So I, I encourage everyone to try it. At least give it a shot. Sounds wonderful. Next question here. Next next ingredient even. Mm-hmm. Uh, the orange liqueur. Mm. Forgot about that. Are you just... Quantro, I mean, Quantro tends to do very well in taste tests as well and is very popular. Is that where you're going or are you going anywhere different on that front? I'm going for Quantro. I am. Yeah. Again, you know, you can totally mix and match with this cocktail. Um, Brian Miller, my colleague, likes to talk about the Mr. Potato Head theory of cocktails, right? It's yeah. your world and you can mix mix it up however you want based on what you prefer. Um, but I certainly, I think Quantro is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Combier could work as well. Um, but... Uh, I think it's important for anybody to know that, like, in my opinion, you're, you're looking for something dry, something sort of, yeah. you know, one note and something relatively higher in ABV. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, other other curacaos that are based in cognac are great in certain applications, but this isn't yeah. one of them for me. It just adds a little too much to the picture and it, it, it you know, muddies the water, so to speak. Yeah, I bet it takes away from that brightness you were talking about earlier. Does, yeah. And probably kills the absinthe, too. Mm-hmm. Actually, absinthe, I didn't have it on my notes here. That's the next one. A couple things here. We will talk about the preparation, but how much are you using? How much do you want this to impact the cocktail? Like a rinse, okay, that's great. But a rinse is a very, you know, it's not a very specific application. I know these days a lot of bartenders to do prefer like a, a mist of absinthe over it or whatever. Mm-hmm. What's your thinking when it comes to this cocktail? Uh, I like to dash absinthe into the cocktail personally. Okay. Um, I think a rinse is great for certain cocktails, and we can talk more about technique later. I personally don't believe that a rinse makes sense in most shaken cocktails if it's on the glass, especially if the cocktail is filling up the entire volume of the glass, you might as well just put it in the cocktail. I think a rinse makes more sense in a Sazerac where you have an exposed 
you know, part of the glass exposed that the right. accent can cling to. That's a great point and something I never considered before. But yeah, why? Why? And also, why it's waste end the up step? in the cocktail? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's going to end up in the cocktail, and you might as well shake it, integrate it, mm-hmm. and you know, in the hopes of maybe aerosolizing it a little bit and having it kind of you know start to come up through the cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I put two two relatively hefty dashes. A dash mm-hmm. is you know, sort of a complicated thing to measure sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I do two, two th- hefty dashes. I think this might be wrong. If I'm remembering cor- correctly, we had Neil Bodenheimer on episode number, maybe even number two or number three, I want to say. I think it was number three, the Sazerac. They were talking about a cure. They use pipettes. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that one dash is seven drops. By his math. I okay. might be wrong there. I might be misremembering. Sorry if I am Neil there. But um, that gives you an idea, right? But the dash, it's it's, it's tough. But if, are you using, you know, like fancy the Japanese kind of those ones for, for the... We, uh, we Yeah, we use the Japanese dasher button. So that's mm. two dashes equals one approximately is what people say. There's more control there on those ones. More more control, yeah. I've heard with the with the pipettes, some people say 11 drops. 11, I, okay, I, that might be, yeah. Look... <laughs> I don't know. What I like to do is I do my two dashes from the bottle that I'm familiar with, and I straw test it before I shake it. And if it tastes like what I remember it should taste like, then I'm happy. Perfect. Um, absinthe brand. I was thinking about this the other day. Are there, like, is it just that one that we all see? I know there's other absinthe out there, and there are domestic ones that are great, but is it just that one that we see Um very commonly, sometimes with Van Gogh on it, you see them in duty freeze. I bought a bottle in duty free. Is that the one you're using, or, or, or any thoughts there? Are you thinking more about maybe cost when it comes to that? Uh, no, I mean, so it's sort of tough. I I, uh, I think you can go a lot of different directions, and especially because it's only two dashes. Yeah, you know, uh, it's 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 hard to say. I have tested it with a few different ones, and I think I prefer it with Vupontarlier myself, mm-hmm. um, especially because that. Uh, that absinthe also, first of all, it's very traditional in terms of its flavor profile, and it's also has somewhat of a mentholated quality to me, which I think really works well in that cocktail and mm-hmm. sort of just helps it shine a little bit more, and it's sharp and it's dry. Um, but, yeah, there are tons of different absinths out there. It's something you can explore with. Definitely something that, um, because there's so little in the cocktail, I think you have more uh, room to explore. Mm-hmm. Rather than sw- swapping out different curacaos or swapping yeah. out, you know, not to say that my recipe is by any means the gold standard, but um, but you know, it's not going to make a tremendous impact on the cocktail. Mm-hmm. I don't believe. I think that's yeah. I'm I'm just blown away by this concept of putting it in the shaker there with the other ingredients, and also I think it's going to do more than just save labor. Like like you said, exposing yeah. it to you know air and directly with dilution rather than kind of secondary dilution with a cocktail. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that's probably better for the ingredient. Yeah, I agree. There's so many things that we do in bartending uh, because of tradition mm-hmm. or because of, uh, you know, visual appeal. And some of those things are, are good in certain applications. But um, I think in this case, you know, an absinthe rinse is, you know, it's key for a Sazerac. It's key for... Um, you know, a number of other different cocktails. But if you want the cocktail to be consistent, A, and if you want it to to really shine through as mm-hmm. you sip it in a shaken cocktail, I think you put it in the shaker for mm-hmm. sure. Um, speaking of the old rinse there as well, reminds me we, uh, during 
Dale DeGroff's episode on the on the fifty fifty martini, he brought up a cocktail, the Flame of Love, invented for Dean Martin, and um, has the the vermouth rinse. Mm-hmm. It was funnily enough, we we made a video of it here at Vine Pair for for our social media, and we had like an article about the the cocktail itself, and we put it out there. And I want to say, I mean, we got an amazing response to the video online, but there were a few people there in the comments being like very they were hating on the rinse mm-hmm. and discarding the vermouth <laughs> there was the there were some haters out there so not everyone out there enjoys a rinse just just putting that one out there that is true <laughs> um all right then let's talk about the preparation here speak us through the cocktail as if you were making it here in the studio today um including your your recipe your ratios and also you can go into the specifics of the shaker, the ice, everything. We want to hear it all. All right. Let's get nerdy, I guess. Yep. Um, so if we want to get really, really specific, um, I'm using a Cocktail Kingdom Carico, uh two-piece metal shaker tin. Um, and uh, I'm building in my small tin. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, so measuring in a jigger, three-quarters of an ounce of each ingredient, um, starting with your least expensive ingredient first, so that if you mess up, you can dump it out and not waste your fancy expensive alcohol. Um, and then uh, a 50-50 blend of my Koki Americano and my Kina Lero d'Or, three quarters of an ounce of that as well. Three quarters of an ounce of my Cointreau, and then three quarters of, say, my Tanqueray Number no. Ten or whatever London Dry Gin you may have available. So you're going, you're going for that three quarter. You're not going for the one. I'm not going for the one. Okay. I'm going for the three quarter. Three quarter tank. Certainly. Nice. Um, and uh, then I would also add about three drops of saline solution to that cocktail, um, or you could do a very, very small pinch of salt. Um, I think that this is a cocktail that really benefits from a little bit of salt. And two hefty dashes of my Vupantarlia absinthe. Nice. Um, yep, I'm adding some high quality ice. Uh, cold draft. Cold draft. Um, if you're at home, something large format from the freezer, and then maybe a small cube to contribute some dilution. Shaking it for about 10 to 12 seconds, and I am fine straining it into a preferably chilled Nick and Nora glass. Nick and Nora, huh? Yeah, I like it in Nick and Nora. Anything of, of that build, three-quarter, 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 uh, I think Nick and Nora is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were doing a coupe and you had a little bit more room in the glass, I think that maybe you could justify your absinthe rinse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, garnish-wise, I don't garnish this cocktail. I think you cook, some people argue that a lemon swath expressed over the top of the cocktail works. I personally think that um, that sort of overtakes my aromatic experience of the absinthe. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to do that, my suggestion to you would be to also aromatize um, some absinthe over the top in addition to that lemon oil. Nice. Um, Which those two things work really well together, as we know from our Sazerac. So so that can work as well. And then I would serve Serve it to my guest or drink it preferably myself. And then proceed to, to make and drink three more in quick succession. So that you're you're doing so you're hitting Craddock's rules there. Got to hit Craddock's rules. <laughs> Those are the rules I live by. <laughs> I got to say when I when you were talking about the garnish there, it occurred to me, maybe I'm just a curmudgeon, but I'm I, I'm less and less these days. Do I enjoy a lemon garnish in a in anything that's served up in a kind of coupe? Hmm. I, I I do like an express and discard 
where necessary. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm kind of over it for now. I go through phases. How do you feel about that? Um, I don't know. I, I don't. I wouldn't say I'm over it myself. I think it's, um, but uh, <laughs> not trying to bring you on on board with this. No, you know I understand take. what you're saying. As I was, you know, going through my recipe for this cocktail, I I was trained to garnish it with a lemon peel, and I think also yeah. um, a lot of times we recognize that a cocktail might look pretty with a garnish, and if that garnish is a peel, we just automatically assume that we're going to express it. Yeah, and we don't always think about the implications that that might have on the cocktail. Um, also. You see bartenders oftentimes over, over expressing their yeah. peels, and it really can yeah, that yeah. it can totally uh, ruin a drink, particularly for those first sips, mm-hmm. um, first few sips. Um, so it depends. Depends on the drink. There are some drinks that I've had or that I've worked on with with peers where I will just be missing something. And I can't quite figure out what it is, and this actually happened relatively recently with. Um, Brian Miller, when we were coming up with cocktails for a pop-up we were doing in Paris, and we couldn't get this one down, and then he was like, give me a minute. Made a version, put it right in front of me. I was like, this is amazing. What did you do? Lemon peel, express, discard. Express and discard. Miller, a man after my own heart, friend of the show. (laughs) Um, All right, I'm going to throw you a tough one here. Throw me a tough one. A curveball. Name me a cocktail of this ilk, of this style that we're talking about here, that is actively improved by placing the peel garnish in it. Of this style, placing the garnish uh, in it. So shaken or stirred, served up in a coupe style glass or nick and Shaken or stirred? Shaken or stirred. Um, That's a good question. You know what? And this is a very controversial opinion that I have. I believe... Mm, but you're saying stir- stirred up, served up in a coupe glass. I was going to say Sazerac, so that doesn't quite fit the. No, so bill. so that's why I'm saying that specifically yeah. because I want this in my Sazerac. Yeah, well, or you should, on the edge. Yeah, Miller does not. Really? He doesn't. Yes, we've had a lot of conversations Jeez. about this. I know. Um, I think uh, I would argue a martini. I do like it in my martini. Yeah. I know you don't. I like it expressed. Mm-hmm. I just. I don't know. It's the curmudgeon. I don't know what it is. Yeah. While we're on these takes, um, and speaking about like rocks glass versus up, we may have spoken about this off offline some point or may not. The Boulevardier. Mm-hmm. I'm only ever again drinking Boulevardiers up in a mm-hmm. coupe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's how Toby Chikini does it down at Long Island Bar. I had this for the first time recently in in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Blew my mind. <laughs> Never going back. Yeah, I I agree. I prefer the Boulevardier up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think because I mean my recipe for a Boulevardier personally is uh, one and a half, three quarter, three quarter, and mm-hmm. I think because it's showcasing and highlighting the main spirit a little bit more, for some reason it makes more sense to me that it's up. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I do serve my Negroni on the rocks, and I don't really mm-hmm. understand necessarily why on a on an intricate level those things are that much different because a negroni can be great up but it just works better doesn't it yeah yeah it must be it must be like you said i mean the only difference of course is the spirit i think it probably that and it's something to do with that but yeah yeah um well we do digress but we enjoy doing so (laughs) any final thoughts on the corpse reviver number two before we head into the final section of the show um no i mean uh i think my only other notes are uh that i think you should it's important to find your own recipes, you know? I mean, my recipe, I think, is great, and I've tested it a lot, but I don't think it's 
it's like I said, I don't think it's the golden, you know, rule and everybody has different preferences. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a cocktail where you can do a lot of experimenting and you can experiment with a number of different gins. There are certainly other gins that work well in it that are not of a London dry style. Yeah. You can even get really weird and use, you know, monkey 47 or Apostolis Mate and introduce some new flavors into the mix. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's the fun thing about this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Is, is you can, you could make I don't know, thousands of different versions of this cocktail, really, mm -hmm. and and enjoy quite a few of them. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Might as well throw another hot take out there while we're at it. Just reminded me there. I think Monkey 47 is a wonderful product, and I enjoy the, I particularly enjoy the Distillers uh, Select, Distillers Batch series, that the, the, the limited edition ones they do. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a great cocktail gin, though. Mm. It's definitely a tricky cocktail gin, that's yeah. for sure. It, um, it, it, it doesn't work in everything. Mm -hmm. And it also is going to fundamentally change pretty mm -hmm. much any cocktail you put it in, isn't mm -hmm. it? If you're, if you're looking for anything for sure. that resembles a standard gin. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's fun to play around with. It's, it's, but I tell you this. So every year for Vine Pair, when we do the annual, like, you know, I do different roundups. We're, we're tasting for our column. When I'm doing the gin roundup, mm -hmm. I always leave that tasting thinking, I'm going to drink more neat gin because gin really does work well neat if it it's does, yeah. if it's good enough and we just don't do it and then when i get home if i'm drinking neat spirits i'm drinking whiskey mm -hmm. so you know i never do i never follow that right but i will say monkey 47 is one of three to five bottles i have on my shelf that i would consider drinking neat yeah. most of them i'm not gonna but it's great for that yeah here's another hot take i think if you if you believe that a, a gin is a viable option to be consumed neat I think that there is a martini recipe out there for that gin. Yes. Yes, fair enough. Fair enough. That's that a good point. I, that is what I believe. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's a good point. Yeah, um, but but it's tricky. M Monkey 47 is definitely, definitely mm -hmm. tricky. I had a lot of fun working with products like that at the gin bar that I worked at, mm -hmm. particularly because part of that job was introducing people to what gin was and what it could be. And it was always fun to you know, introduce maybe a slightly more experienced drinker who's like, okay, I know my London Dry, I know mm -hmm. my, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, but they hadn't had Monkey 47, put that in a cocktail, and they're like, whoa, what yeah. is going on? Yeah. Right? So I think it's it's fun. It's great. It's, yeah. All right, then. We're doing it. We're going into the final questions of the show, the five quick hit. doesn't need to be that quick, but um, it's the five final questions of the show. All right. Starting with number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? So for me, typically, it's going to be gin, mm -hmm. as we've discussed thoroughly throughout this podcast. Uh, but currently, at Lullaby, it is by far rum. And I wonder why that is. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's snuck it in somehow. Um, so, But that's been really fun, uh, the process of kind of rediscovering rum mm -hmm. and learning more about it with Brian, who's just so mm -hmm. absolutely you know, in love with and enchanted by it. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, so currently it's rum, but typically it would absolutely be gin for me. Amazing. And Brian Miller there, just in case anyone needs reminding, uh, friend of the show appeared on episode number five, I want to say, Mai Tai. Go check that out after as well. A lot of listening to do after this one. People are doing the Vesper, they're doing <laughs> the Mai Tai. Uh, I hope you got a lot of, I hope you got a lot of stuff lined up to do while you're listening to these. Anyway, <laughs> question number two. What ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Salt. Salt. You, really, snuck, you snuck it in there in the recipe as well. I think it's salt. I really do. And, um, you know, that is not a 
like by any means a revelation coming out of my mouth because, uh, you know, I think the, the person who really popularized this recently is Dave Arnold. Um, and, uh, but it still, you know, baffles me how, how many cocktail bars I've worked in and also how many places I see that just don't not even, not only don't have salt in any of their classics, but don't even have saline solution made or available nearby. Mm -hmm. Um, what dilution are you typically going to with your saline solution? Uh, I'm doing four parts water to one part salt. Got it. Um, yeah, I think it really uh, just as a as another tool mm-hmm. in your arsenal is so essential. And and for anybody who hasn't worked with it, just try it out in a few cocktails, a few mm-hmm. classics, daiquiri, and see what you think. Have I think you're mind can, blown. Yeah, really. This really reminds me again of this theory I have. You know, people think that cooking and bartending are very similar. I would say that yes, that's true to a certain extent, but pastry chefs patisserie is baking. more yeah baking that's yeah. much more similar to to bartending and making cocktails than than you know working in the the hot kitchen right um and so often in pastry as well pastry chefs don't use salt and and they need to and they don't realize that they need a little bit in their sauces or whatever and it's it could, it just transforms a recipe right yeah well, and i think also people don't even really think about you know you're following your basic recipe for cookies or something like that yeah and it's like a teaspoon of salt you don't even th- you know you just like put it in you're like oh because it's in the recipe yeah well, why is it in there it's, it's in, in there because it's salt yeah right and we need it we need we, it to enhance flavors exactly yeah. yeah and also at one point give people their worth their salary uh <laughs> question number three what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry Yikes, that's a tough one. Um, you're not a mixologist. You're just a bartender. Okay. Honestly. I think sometimes we take ourselves a little too seriously mm-hmm. in this industry, and we forget that we're just slinging drinks and getting people drunk yeah. and trying to show people a good time. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I really try to wear that on my sleeve as much as possible and, and just constantly remind myself of that fact because mm-hmm. it's easy to just take ourselves seriously. We're not scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not chefs for that matter. <laughs> we are bartenders and what we, you know, we certainly serve a very important role and, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think that what we do is very important and, and very valuable. But, um, at the end of the day, you know, we know what, what it is we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's not that complicated. That's, that's good. I like it. It's good advice there. Question number four, if you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Bar Marseille in Barcelona for a traditional absinthe. Okay. Final question today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Martini. How are you having your martini? We don't have to get into that. But it would definitely be a martini. <laughs> dry. Maybe, maybe dry. Well, maybe maybe dry, maybe wet. I don't know. Uh-uh. It really depends on my mood. But I mean that that old King Cole we, martini we had the other day at um Maison Maison Premier, Premier, yeah. was really, really sensational. It's a showstopper. And hey, shameless plug, but the martini at Lullaby it's is quite fantastic <laughs> as well. I I can confirm it is a wonderful martini at Lullaby. I always start my my visit there with that. Um Wow, that's been a blast, Harrison. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cocktail College. Let's go make some Corpse Revivers. Likewise, Tim. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, 
If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Fine Pairs Tastings Director and All Round Podcast Guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vine Pair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at Vine Pair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.